Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The official sponsor of the Can We Please Talk podcast is Fresh Roasted Coffee. It's a new year. Let's get you some great tasting coffee to help you start your day off right. Whether you're shopping for coffees, teas, syrups, mixes, mugs, gift cards, and more, when you get to checkout, enter in the promo code CANWEGET20 to get 20% off your first purchase of the delicious coffee that helps Nick and I get through these episodes. Head to our sponsors at FreshRoastedCoffee.com today. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, we start off with a somber note. Uh, If you haven't heard about the shooting in Monterey Park, California, Nick and I, with the latest details on that, plus President Biden, more documents have been found over in his Delaware house. Nick and I with the latest on President Biden and the investigation that the Department of Justice did at President's house this past weekend. Plus, later on the program, FBI special agent, former FBI special agent and author of a new book that's coming out called The Queen of Cuba. Pete Lapp is back on the program with us. He's going to help us break down the differences between the President Trump investigation and President Biden investigation. But spoiler alert, they're both bad and should be investigated. And then in our last segment, I allow my co-host here, Nick Saveri, to tee off on Florida's education system. More on that later on in the program. Uh, Nick. You know, normally I would turn to you here and, and we would start off with some light banter, as we always do. How's everything going? How's it going? This, that. You texted me this morning for the people that are listening on a Monday. Uh, we record, obviously, Sunday afternoons. And you texted me in the morning on Sunday about a shooting that had just happened in Monterey Park overnight uh, that left 10 people dead and a suspect, as of this taping right now, uh, 
I think they have gotten him because there's a currently a standoff underway, which is allegedly about the person involved in this shooting. The sheriff's department, uh, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department put out a bulletin attempting to identify a man, uh, an Asian man with glasses and a black cap that could be a person of interest with respect to this shooting that happened uh, over there in Monterey Park, about 10 miles uh, outside of Los Angeles. It was a shooting as people were celebrating the Lunar New Year. 10 people have died, five males and five women, according to this attack at a dance studio again in Monterey Park, California. Take a quick listen to the summation of, from the local news channel out there in Los Angeles. A gunman is on the loose after a mass shooting at a Lunar New Year celebration in Monterey Park, California. One neighbor says, says the gunshot sounded like fireworks, and because of the celebrations in the area, he didn't think much of it at the time. But the sheriff's office says 10 people are dead and 10 others hurt. And again, that gunman is still not in custody. So that was earlier in the day. Again, like I mentioned, as Nick and I are recording this, there's still a standoff as you're listening to this on the Monday or whenever you're listening to this, he may have already been captured, but uh, witnesses suggest that the shooter was an Asian man between the age of 30 and 50. And the, the sheriffs and, and the folks over there in law enforcement put out a photo uh, searching for somebody before we get into our first segment uh, uh, about president Biden. Uh, I wanted to touch about this because we, we always, it's a circular motion here with respect to this show and mass shootings. You and I are not going to offer any new commentary on this. Um, I want to say uh, over the last week, I was on a trip uh, for work uh, across the pond in, in Portugal and was talking with uh, some coworkers about this. Shout out my buddy Tom in Minnesota. And we were just talking about the amount of guns, the amount of high capacity magazines, the amount of assault rifles that are out there. We've talked about ad nauseum on this show about the need to uh, raise the age limits for guns, right? Be responsible gun ownership. We get that. We're in line with it. Nick and I are not gun owners, but we get it. We get it. Uh, however, the ability to get one day of and the high capacity and be able to kill as this person did, and I don't know how many other people are injured, but 10 people were killed in this attack um, because of the weapon being used, right? Which is believed to be an assault rifle uh, in this shooting. You're going to hear the same stuff from us. It's the same stuff. It's it's recidivism and it just keeps going around and around. It's this person, day of, got gun, or maybe not day of, doesn't matter. Found a way to circumvent the processes albeit small, depending upon what state you live in, the processes to own a gun and then commit an act of violence like this, mass casualties because of the type of weaponry that they're using. And then the thoughts and prayers come out. And then Nick and I talk about how this is this baseball, apple pie, mass shootings, right? This is America. This is what we do. And the conversations I was having in Europe want to bring it over here because somebody said to me, you know how it ends in terms of getting away from mass shootings. Don't live in America. It's that simple. Don't live in America. We don't do this in other countries, as my friends from Australia, South Korea, and, and England were all there, and Ireland as well. And they're like, That's, we don't do that. Is there violence? Sure. 
But do we go into a school and shoot, you know, 19 kids? No. Do we go into a dance club and shoot up, you know, 40 people? No. So I don't know what else you and I can say on this subject matter. The fact that these things keep happening and it's just kind of like wash, rinse, repeat. Like this is going to happen again. It happened before. It's going to happen again. We've been doing this show for two years and we've had almost 10 to 12 instances of these mass shootings that we've covered in different uh, cities and locales here in the U.S. Um, give me some of your initial thoughts uh, on this, because I'm at, I'm at a loss for words a little bit um, because it's it's just heartbreaking and people doing routine mundane activity, going out to celebrate something and then not being able to come home to their families. Give me some of your uh, initial thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, the, it really comes back to one thought, which is that it's just the availability of guns, you know, these certain kinds of guns. You know, we don't know. I don't know the motivations of the shooter. Um, we we may possibly, you mentioned a suspect in a standoff. We may we may potentially know their ethnicity. Um, you know, all we know for sure is that, you know, that there are people who are dead. Um, a gun was involved. Yeah, you know, from all that we're hearing, very likely an assault rifle. You know, you know, our country, like every other country, has people who are angry, people who are unable to work through their emotions, and it manifests in the form of violence. The difference, however, in most countries is that there is no way for your anger to manifest in the form of mass slaughter through an assault weapon. Because as you were in Portugal talking to other, you know, just people from around the world, the availability of these kinds of weapons are just simply, is simply not there. So you could be angry and we've seen mass stabbings for sure. Um, but there is just no ability to run into a store and be able to pick up a high powered assault weapon. The kind of which you would use if you were in say, I don't know, Ukraine. You know, protecting your home against the government of Russia in an invasion. Um, you don't have the ability to go do that and just go run up on a celebration uh, and just murder people. Um, you know, we have the reason I, I talk about this is because, yes, there's the argument of, well, maybe we have a mental health problem in the United States. Um, I'd argue that we have a mental health problem across the world. Um, we're not the only country that engages in violence. However, we're the only country that makes it routinely available to have access to assault weapons to take your level of anger and manifest it into mass murder. Um, you know, I live near Dick's Sporting Goods. I'm in Pennsylvania. When I go into that Dick's Sporting Goods, I was there recently to get soccer gear for my, for my girls. But just only a couple aisles later, I can walk down aisle and lo and behold, Mike, guns. You know, the kind of things you would see in Call of Duty are just hanging on the shelves two aisles away from shin guards. What the hell are we doing? I, I just what are we doing? Wait, I'm so I'm so glad that you said that, because, you know, one of the stark differences from being over there across the pond, I've been to Portugal a couple of times in Spain as well, is just um, here in Florida. I could see somebody in the supermarket with a gun on their holster, like easily. It's an open carry state. You know, you see somebody with their with their gun. It's kind of routine 
doesn't make me feel any safer that that person has a gun because I don't know who that person is. They're not law enforcement, right? They're, I don't know if they're properly trained or not. I just know that they happen to have that. In Europe, when you're around in circles, and I'm doing tours and stuff like that over there. I'm not going on a stand-up comedy tour, folks. I'm talking about like actual tours. And, you know, I don't, I'm not looking at anybody's waist to see if they have a weapon. Like I'm not, look, again, is there violence in Europe? Yeah, duh. Is there violence around the world? Sure, sure. But to the level that people over there, the first question people always ask me when I'm always there, when I'm, when I'm over there, excuse me, is like, how do you guys deal with these shootings? Like, I just saw another one happen, you know? And, and, and again, I get this more because, you know, I have family over there. So like their response to me is like, you know, what's going on? Like, how's it, you know? And then I have to explain to them that, oh, by the way, you know, uh, California is not near Florida. I don't know if you know that, but, um, but it's, it's still, it's always like a point of emphasis for them. It's like, Boy, that's such an American thing. You guys are so American with your love for guns. There's too many guns. And and then the conversations that we had, you know, coworkers of mine, you know, again, and, and again, you, you got a couple of drinks there, but but it's good, healthy conversations. And it's people that have sensibilities, right? I'm a gun owner, but if tomorrow we got to give these back, let's take them back for the greater good. Like, let's get rid of these things because- a piece of steel shouldn't be more important than someone's life. And again, you and I are not going to offer anything else to this conversation, to this discourse, uh, other than trying to cover this and give it attention and be able to advocate more for sensible gun ownership and gun safety measures and laws. The problem is here in the US, we have 50 states to kind of do their own thing at their own whim. And at a federal level, we haven't seen anything enacted uh, in, in over 30 years. So more on that story as more information comes out, like I mentioned, as Nick and I are recording this and as you're listening to this the next day, there may have been already an arrest or a killing of the suspect in custody. But as of right now, as Nick and I are taping this, there's a SWAT standoff believed to be related to the mass shooting of the person uh, who is a person of interest in this case. All right, let's pivot Nick, as best as we can to our first segment uh, real quick before we go to our, to the break and Pete Lap, because Pete talked a lot about this uh, in our next segment and nobody better than a former FBI special agent uh, in charge of, who has a government clearance still, who had one that was a, a little bit more higher level. Uh, I'll let you, uh, we'll, we'll let you listen to what Pete said about this, but if you haven't heard about what happened over the weekend as the Department of Justice worked in conjunction with President Biden's lawyers to search his Delaware home over 13 hours in the search. Six more documents turned up uh, in terms of classified sensitive markings that were documents related to what, the time when President Biden was actually a U.S. senator, which is almost over 12, 13 years ago. Take a listen. News Nation breaking this news down. One of their correspondents talking about uh, what happened over the weekend and the investigation and what it turned up. This just came into our newsroom, and we know this search happened with the Department of Justice agents just yesterday 
inside President Joe Biden's home in Delaware. We know this search lasted 13 hours in total, and agents were able to find six additional documents uh, with classified uh, markings on them. These documents uh, date back to uh, the president's time as a senator, as well as his time as vice president. Also connected to this search, though, we know that uh, agents also took away some notes found inside the uh, Delaware home. Attorneys for President Biden stressed in statements Saturday evening over the weekend, the president is in full cooperation with the Department of Justice and the special counsel investigation that was opened last week. We talked about that in our last episode with Merrick Garland uh, issuing that in the presser saying who would be in charge of that investigation. Uh, Again, if you're following at home, if you're scoring at home, you're sitting there going, Okay, take me through this, Mike. Well, let me take you through it. More than a dozen classified documents were discovered in President Biden's personal offices. Then an initial batch of documents previously were discovered at the Biden Penn Center last year as they were packing up the boxes to move him out of there. Now, these six documents found after a full sweep of the house and uh, President Biden's house, and it turned up six more documents that were in his possession, sensitive markings and classifications from his time as U.S. Senator. All right, Nick, I really want people to listen to the next segment and what Pete said about this, because it is really eye-opening and, and a good breakdown by somebody who worked you know, in law enforcement doing this. But before I let you give uh, your takeaways on this, uh, uh, let me give you real quick what some of the folks in the House of Representatives and Congress are saying. Overall, Joe Manchin was on NBC's Meet the Press this past weekend. Uh, with Chuck Todd. And he was saying, I think the president should have a lot of regrets. And, you know, it's very callous the way he's been handling these documents. Uh, Chris Coons, you know, the the senator from Connecticut said there's one important document that distinguishes former President Trump from President Biden. And that's a warrant, again, to the American people, to the outsiders. They're not going to know that, Christopher. They're not going to know that. They're not going to do the breakdown like we did. This isn't a whataboutism game. This is plain, simple, former guy, current guy, both have classified documents, whether or not the volume, the cooperation, stuff like that, it doesn't matter to those people that are watching and listening to this program. They're going to just have a high level takeaway, sensitive documents found here, this guy's home, that guy's home. All right, give me some of your takeaways before we go to the break and talk to Pete about uh, all of this. Yeah, I... I, I agree, you know, in, in both cases, it's just negligible. Um, and it also begs the question of just going forward, you know, what do, what becomes the law, what becomes the expectation mandates, what have you for people that have access to classified information? You know, if it seems so easy for people currently, at least two people who did and the former current president to just have classified documents lying around, then obviously this current practice isn't working. So I'm I'm here for the conversation of like what's in these documents, what is it telling us? But I also want to know what are we going to do about this? Like going forward, what do we put in place to to say that things have to be turned in? And if things are not turned in, there are ramifications for it. And I don't know what those ramifications are. Um, and I agree with you about you know what in, in rebutting what the senator Chris Coons had said. Um, the only thing I will offer though is that the reactions of these two gentlemen is very stark. You know, in in President Trump, you know, talking about the FBI, you know, which he had done throughout his presidency, you know, really just um, attacking an institution in our government 
And any institution that went against him was met with um, all levels of paranoia. And this is what Trump does is he will he will force the hand of us to criticize our systems or anyone who isn't sane, I guess, um, whereas the current president is saying, yeah, check everything. But what I, I mean, and it's an important distinction because, you know, whereas President Trump continues to erode our trust in systems, you know, the current president saying, like, do deal due diligence, just check everything. But the only thing I think that I can't help repeating, though, is this is still just a major screw up. It doesn't matter who it is. You know, we've had people on this show. We're going to be talking to Pete in a minute. Um, we've had Marie Harf on this program. Pete's actually this will be his third time actually with us. Um, we've had people with clearance codes, you know, cl- that, that tell us often that this is something you don't screw around with. And meanwhile, we have people in the highest office of this country who don't act like the law applies to them. And I think that's a problem. If I were sitting down with the current president, I would ask Joe Biden that question is. You know, what makes you special? Because we've certainly talked to people in the FBI, in the CIA and other agencies who take this a lot more seriously than you. And so what what is your problem? You know, my big takeaway, Nick, on all of this, uh, and I said it in the last episode, was kind of the previous administration, whatever your political leanings with respect to that, I don't care about that. But at a high level, when you watch press conferences of the former president, when you listen to folks that worked in the administration, they all talked about how this uh, President Trump, former President Trump, felt he was above the law, right? Or he did certain things that were unbecoming of the office, right? Like, uh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I don't have to answer to you because I'm president, right? And we've seen that kind of carry out as he has you know, stated that the election was stolen and rigged and things like that, the deep state, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now we fast forward and we've seen President Biden kind of misstep into certain things that are taking away from certain legislative bills that have been passed by the House and Senate under his watch by a pretty decent midterm election in terms of you know, historical outlooks uh, of the way midterms have gone for presidents in their first two years. President Biden was able to retain the Senate and just have a slim majority now for Republicans in the House. Uh, but all of that takes a backseat because now He's being investigated, just like the former guy. And he's been found to have classified documents from his time as vice president and senator when he chastised on national television the former president for having documents like this. So it's 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 one of those things where it's like you watch that person do something. You're like, OK, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to play it straight and narrow. And then all of a sudden you make a mistake just like they did just like they did prior. And you were asked about it and you made fun of it and chastised it. Said this this person is so reckless for the way they're handling it. And then don't let me find out that you did the same thing. And here we are now, six months later, and it's the same thing. Pete's going to break it all down in the next segment. I, I The timing of having a former FBI special agent in charge of some of this stuff uh, couldn't have been better. Pete Lapp will tell us all about the Queen of Cuba book that comes out later on this fall, help us break down this President Biden case. And also we'll talk a little bit about this mass shooting that just happened in California. Pete Lab, when we come back after the break. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Nick, today's episode is presented, as always, by our friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, their passion has always been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world, roasted fresh to order. I got my coffee snob here, Nick Saveri. Nick, tell these people, coffee snob it up here. Tell these people why Fresh Roasted Coffee is so good and why they're the official sponsor of Can We Please Talk? You know, often the best cup of coffee that you're ever going to have is the one you can you can make from home. And you need good quality coffee to do that. And that's what Fresh Roasted Coffee offers. You know, between single origin, between blends, flavors, anything on the coffee spectrum they've got. But more importantly, and I can't stress this enough, often when you purchase coffee, you don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many different varieties, so many different opportunities, so many different things you could choose from. And Fresh Roasted Coffee just gives you a very simple questionnaire and just says, hey, figure out what your cup, what your coffee cup is. Figure out what blend works for you. I've gotten some single origin recommendations, so is Mike, and that's influenced everything. And what they recommend, you can get in a Keurig cup, the way Mike takes it. You can take it in the way I do it, which is typically through a French press, or you can get it for a percolator. Whatever coffee machine you've got, they've got you covered. But more importantly, just a huge variety and a way to learn more about coffee itself. No, that's very well said. And all of this is available at freshroastedcoffee.com on their site. One cup is all it takes to fall in love with fresh roasted coffee, but you get a discount for being a listener of Can We Please Talk. All you got to do is enter in the promo code Can We Get 20 at checkout to get 20% off your first purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, our buddy Pete Lapp is back with us on the program, former FBI special agent in charge of espionage and also author of a book that will be coming out later on in the fall. It's called The Queen of Cuba, an FBI agent's insider account of the spy who evaded detection for 17 years. If you haven't heard the story about Anna Montes, Pete is back. He's going to tell us all about it. Pete, Mike and Nick, good to see you again, my friend. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate having me on and uh, great to see you both as well. Absolutely. You know, Pete, it's funny because we were just talking about this off air. Um, obviously, last night, you know, NFL playoff games, you're a big Eagles fan, you know, the, the excitement of all that stuff. And then we all wake up this morning and we find out that there's been a, another mass shooting in this country over in Monterey Park. At least 10 people 
have been killed in this attack. Um, I know, obviously, it's a little bit different um, what you did for the FBI with respect to an investigation like this, if you would be a part of that. Um, but first, just some of your takeaways of, of upon hearing the news and now what law enforcement is going to have to do to kind of sort this out. Well, this is, uh, uh, again, another tragic event that we have to talk about, and they seem to happen all too frequently. This case is uh, unique in the sense that there's still a, the subject is at large and and on the run. Um, and that's that's got to be terrifying for that community. You know, a lot of times when these things happen, shooter is killed by law enforcement or committed suicide there. And at least the threat to the public it ends in that moment. And it looks like it's continuing. And in the sense that until that individual is brought to uh, justice and arrested, you know, the, the community has a lot of fears. So I would think law enforcement is doing everything it can expeditiously, you know, first and foremost to identify this individual and trying to figure out where he or she is. But, uh, you know, obviously my heart go out, goes out to the victims and their families. This is just a, another incredibly tragic uh, event that we wake up to in the morning and um, it just seems like it doesn't end. Yeah. Yeah, I echo all of that. Uh, Nick and I spoke about it a little bit in the first segment. Uh, Pete, we're going to get into the book. I couldn't uh, time this out better having you on the program to talk about uh, all the classified document stuff with President Biden. We're going to get into that later on. And then we're going to get into your Twitter beef with Edward Snowden. So more on that in a bit. <laughs> um, but first, Pete, tell us a little bit about last time you were on the program. You've been on a couple of times, um, but last yeah. time you were on, we were talking about this book and then. You told us about Anna Montez and the story of it and how she was getting released on January 6th of this year. So she is out now. Tell people about the book and the story overall of your arrest of Anna. So 10 days after 9-11, the FBI arrested Anna Montez, a woman who was spying for the Cuban government for, at that point in time, almost 17 years uh, against the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, which is essentially the CIA for the Department of Defense. Uh, it's an incredible story, I think. Uh, and I've, as I've researched more to it than I ever needed to know for the investigation and prosecution, I've learned so much more information that's really, really interesting, um, you know, shows how near perfect she was in her espionage that allowed her to go on for so long and, and undetected. Um, I learned I've learned how many how many near misses that we had that we 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 came close to um the right person hearing the right information and the wrong person including her hearing about information that could have tipped her off and I, I'm I'm really looking forward to revealing these little nuggets that I've have found but um the story is is interesting you know the fact that she is out of prison is remarkable in and of itself because you know, I put her in that same category of of Hanson and Ames um, and Snowden into the degree of damage and notoriety. You know, she is a part of the annual security training that every government employee and every clearance holder uh, goes through. So she's got that notoriety. And for her to be released and stay in the United States is probably what I have the most personal difficulty with because she's so anti-American and you, 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 it seeps through her public statement that she made in the weekend after her release, but she's going to now live 
in the United States free under under the blessings and and freedoms that our country provides and um that's that's kind of hard to 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 really get my head around to be honest with you that it seems in contrast you know when you mentioned Robert Hansen and um Eric Snowden you know folks who try to do their best to try to get as far away from the country as possible what is it that uh, yes there's the privilege obviously of, of being in the US but this just feels odd that she feels safe enough to continue to you know live and operate within you know within the United States what is it about just her mentality or just her view of what she did um that gives her the sense of safety or the fact that she can you know be essentially unmolested as a as a US citizen now uh in contrast to other folks who have who have betrayed or been traitors to the United States and let's be honest she is a traitor um but who do seek refuge or intense or intensely try to get as far away from the U.S. as, they, as possible. Yeah. The most recent case, the most, the, the case that I'm most aware of, it, you know, obviously Snowden was, was very high profile, but Jonathan Pollard who went to prison, uh, I think he spent 27 years. And then when he's released goes to Israel. So it's not going to stay in the United States. I think Anna choosing to live in Puerto Rico, um, she is of Puerto Rican descent, so a lot of um, ethnic kind of connections to the island. She spent some time living there um, as a as a as a young adult um, with family. You know, Puerto Rico is so unique in the sense that there's a lot of tension between Puerto Rico and the United States in terms of the identity. A lot of I've, I've talked to some friends of some some recent um, conversations with Puerto Rican individuals who admit that they don't necessarily feel um, American and they feel Puerto Rican, you know, as a nationality. So I think she'll probably, you know, she, she could not have chose a better place to go in the United States to live in an area where she's going to feel comfortable and to create this new life that she has uh, as a free woman you know, with a with a gap in of of twenty two year gap in her resume because of uh, you know spending time in the federal prison. Pete, obviously, with the book, and as you mentioned before, being mindful of just some really it, just really interesting nuggets that will be revealed as people read through your book. But what would you consider, if you're okay with sharing, um, one of the one of the smaller details, but really revealing in the in the book that. It really sheds light on either on his mentality or the investigation, something that people are going to, you know, at first think, I don't know if this is that big a deal. But as reading the book later on, realize that was a bigger nugget than they had taken than they um, given credit for. Uh, The chapter I am most proud of that I wrote is a chapter called Runaway. And yes, it's based off of the Bon Jovi song. Um, but it really is the beginning of the story for the U.S. government in terms of what we knew and when. And and it's such a fascinating part of the story that that hasn't been told in in its entirety. And then and then the escape, if you will, is is really really dramatic. I think it goes to that chapter in particular goes to the insider threat from another government's perspective and what it takes for people to make that decision to betray their country and defect to the United States. But before they do that, provide intelligence to the U S intelligence community that helps start cases. And and I can really 
you know, I'm in the middle of pre-publication review now. The government's going through and looking for classified information in my manuscript. And hopefully, you know, we're going to have a very positive outcome here soon. Um, so I have to be careful. But I think this part of the story, because I got it right from the sources, um, is really cool. And 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 it's a chapter that I am so excited to, because it really shows the very beginning of of the investigative story that that hasn't really been revealed yet. You know, you were talking about before about how Anna Montes in, in, in respect to all the training that happens now with with field agents, whatever it may be, that she's kind of top of the list in terms of subject matter. And, hey, you know, let's learn from this. But can you expand on that a little bit? Like what what lessons are current government officials, people training to become FBI agents? What are they learning from the Montes case or what would Pete Lapp want them to learn from the Montes case? Well, it's beyond FBI agents. It's it's uh, clearance holders. You know, there's four million clearance holders that are required to, for the government and contractors that are required to have annual security training, and then insider threat training. And and she is one of several of the the vignettes that are showed and shared, um, and and the kind of lessons learned because she didn't receive money for her espionage she was ideologically motivated and i i like to say that she's more she was more idealistic in her motivation um it shows that you know she was near perfect so detection was very difficult but kind of emphasizing the aspect of you know the see something say something and 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 there were times where certain things that she said started to draw some suspicions by certain people. And it was a matter of putting some dots together and connecting some dots. But um, you had to balance these little suspicions with this reputation that she had. I mean, this Queen of Cuba reputation, you know, it's the book title, but I, I, I literally stole it from her reputation because that's how many people saw her in the intelligence community. So when you have a little bit of a, there's something not right here. It's it's got to be in balance with the totality of this this woman who's a, a highly skilled, highly accomplished, highly um, awarded and accredited intelligence analyst. You know, so everything that you know, you have to look at these things in balance. I think, and that's where that perfection, near perfection, helps her get away with it for for 17 years. Pete, uh, I want to pivot now. Because last time we had you on the program, Pete, stop me if you've heard this before, former president had classified documents at his home. Well, now we have the latest story uh, about President Biden and the classified documents that has been found in a few different locations from his time when he was vice president. Uh, I want to get first your overall uh, takeaways on everything that's been coming out. Latest news that we covered in the first segment was that now six more documents as the DOJ was investigating uh, or excuse me, doing a search of President Biden's home in, in conjunction with his attorneys. They turned up six more documents that happened to be from his time in the Senate, six more classified documents. So what are some of your overall takeaways just at a high level, not necessarily comparing it to former President Trump, although you're seeing a lot of false equivalency of that, but expand on what uh, Pete Lapp's initial impressions were of the classified documents found at President Biden's residence in office. Yeah, so my perspective comes from being one of those four million clearance holders. I still have a clearance as a contractor. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing, and I think that it sets a very poor example for current clearance holders 
uh, of which there's 4 million in terms of handling classified information. Um, presidents and vice presidents and even, even uh, members of Congress, their background investigation goes through the election process. The rest of us have to go through uh, investigation where our neighbors, our former employers are talked to. We are granted the privilege of having access to classified information. It truly is a privilege. You will not find anywhere in the Constitution that says you have a right to have access to classified information. It's a privilege. And every clearance holder who signs an SF-312, which is a document that's a contract you know, a non-disclosure agreement between you and the government where you promise not to disclose and, and you promise to handle classified information in accordance with policy, regulations, and laws. And neither individual, former President Trump and current President Biden, neither handled classified information appropriately. And and it's embarrassing for, for both of them. When we release this episode, very likely what we're going to get not so much from this interview, but you know, when Mike and I talk about this is when we bring up false equivalency between how the former president had handled this and currently what we're seeing, you know, we'll get hit very likely with, well, you're, you know, leaning to the president and, you know, this is the same thing, blah, blah, blah. You know, Pete Lapp, former FBI or former member of the FBI. What is the difference between the reactions and the approaches between these two gentlemen uh, as it relates to both of them recklessly handling classified documents? So we're looking at this from a negligence perspective. Both behaviors were negligent. Um, you can argue that former President Trump's was grossly negligent, uh, just in terms of the volume uh, and the amount. And I have a comment about volume and amount um, that we can make in a, in a second or two. Um, I think the reaction, the behavior of both after the, the documents were found, after the government realized that they were both in possession, we can look at how they reacted and responded and see a distinct difference between, you know, President Biden um, volunteering information, um, you know, consenting to an FBI search. That was, in my opinion, a very strong, positive move on his part, whereas, you know, former President Trump drug his feet and, and denied and delayed and, and, you know, was combative legally with the Department of Justice. I do think those are distinct differences that we can make. Um, however, you know, when we're talking about finding of, of classified information that dates back to his his job at the Senate, <laughs> we're not talking about, you know, during the Obama administration when he was vice president. We're talking about at the Senate. And keep in mind, I think I think, you know, Joe Biden probably has some type of maybe not a skiff, a secure room at his home in Wilmington, but he probably has an ability to within regulation store classified information in his home. He's the president. I'm sure they have built something in his home. It's not next to his Corvette. It's not next, it's not in his clock in his in his um in his garage in a in a locked container next to his Corvette. So I think legally he would have a right to keep classified information in his current home, but it's the where and how that I think is going to be highly scrutinized. And then obviously, what is this information? And if we're talking about information that dates back to when he was a senator, then the skiff, that's where it should have been. But it, you, I don't I don't really see the need to know and need to maintain that information well beyond when he was a U.S. senator. I mean, he hasn't been a U.S. senator since Forever. 2008, 
I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's a long time ago. So it shows um, sloppiness. It shows negligence and it shows me, um, you know, a degree of, of uh, carelessness that has, you know, it, it could potentially, you know, damage national security. If we're going to say this about Trump, we've got to say this about Biden, if we're being honest. Yeah, I agree. And we talked about it in our last episode, but I love that you're bringing your expertise into it because at a high level, you know, uh, and especially people that watch television news as a former news producer, they don't know the difference. Former guy, classified docs, current guy, classified docs at his home, at his home. They see commonalities and they they just kind of breeze past it. So that's why I'm glad you're here breaking it down. I did want to ask you something on the investigation part of this, because, you know, as more and more details have come out about this, and that the documents were initially found in November. And then December, more documents were found later on at his home. And now what we're finding out with uh, January and, and last uh, over the weekend, six more documents from his time as senator. From an investigation standpoint, you're still at the FBI. You hear rumblings about this. Or, or do you feel like everything has gone according to plan and they're playing it out the right way with respect to a special counsel and now the escalation process, or is there anything from the investigation process that's made you go, I wouldn't have done it like that. I don't know why it's being done like that. I think, I think if I were uh, on, on team Biden and advising them when the first batch of documents were found at the Penn center, I would have said, look, we need to find anything. Let's scrub our entire, every house, every office, every place there where there could be documents. If we're seeing sloppiness here, and negligence here than perhaps it's elsewhere. I would have had a much greater sense of urgency. And, you know, I don't want to hear about that. There's a lawyer who didn't have a clearance or does have a clearance. Uh, that to me is uh, I, I don't, I don't really buy that. Um, you know, you've got staff, you've got people, and there are people that have clearances that you can have uh, that can go through your personal belongings and, and look and see if there's anything. Um, I do think, you know, again, it's a better response than we saw with the former president. But I, I don't, I don't like the delay. Like I, I don't see a sense of urgency that I would expect. And I think him being the current president complicates things dramatically. It definitely does, makes it much more difficult. Not impossible, but I think you know, especially with the amount of people that he has working for him. You know, no one expects Joe Biden himself to go look through his home and look through every file. We get that. But you got people that can do that and 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 should have had a much more sense of urgency, in my opinion. You would talk, you know, as you were sharing earlier about you know, noticing volume about documents in these respective cases. What stands out to you about that? So, yes, former President Trump had a lot more documents. I mean, significantly more. Volume is an issue when you when you start thinking about intent and assessing whether someone had the intent to mishandle or were they negligent, right? I think that's gonna be a key distinction. However, I'll go back to the Montez case because it's my own personal experience. We found on her computer, 11 pages, what we called it the recovered text, 11 pages of single spaced. It was a conversation between her and the Cubans and the Cubans and her. And it would took, over, took course over a period of time. The most damaging information the most highly classified information that was on those 11 pages was four sentences. So when we talk about volume, it's a factor, 
but it's not the only factor. And, you know, Hansen is in jail for the rest of his life, not because of the volume of information. It's because he gave up the name of three individuals who are cooperating with the U.S. government in the Russian government. Just three, three names. So it wasn't, yeah, he gave up a lot of volume, but my point is, the, the type of information is significant as well. So we'll see what happens potentially with with the Biden story, because will we know, you know, I know that I saw a, an article this morning, I think, in the Post about Iran. Some of the information had to do with Iran. We'll probably never know as a public what's the totality of the information in either case, the Trump or the Biden case. But Volume, volume. Let's let's caveat that by saying, you know, four sentences could have gone on Amantes, potentially the death penalty. So it doesn't take volumes and volumes and volumes of documents to damage national security. You know, uh, I'm so glad that you were talking about some of this stuff during our live show in D.C. about law enforcement agencies, because I wanted to ask you something. And I'm not sure if you saw that recent news article about the three active duty Marines that were charged in the January 6th Capitol riot. You had said something on our live show with respect to if we start going under the hood of some of our agencies, uh, we're, we're going to head down a, a dark path and maybe find a lot of things that we don't like. Uh, and here's a perfect example of it. I would love to get your takeaways on that story of these three active duty Marines who are ready for Civil War II, according to reports upon their arrest and then kind of piggybacking on what you did say back in our live show in October about the agencies and potentially white supremacy living amongst these folks or even QAnon beliefs or something that's not here in the fact and truth of this uh, universe. Yeah, the, it's it's I seem to be a little clairvoyant, huh? <laughs> yeah, um, I would say. Well, you know, I'm not surprised that there were there were three marines who were charged as a result um i'm sure there there were other law enforcement folks that were there active active duty law enforcement um i think we do have to i think we have a white supremacy problem and i think we have a um a conspiracy theory thinking problem within within the government and how do we address that is a big challenge I, I went to an insider threat conference in October and heard from a lot of government, current government insider threat folks. And, and they are they are at least talking about this as something that they should be concerned about, which is a great sign for me. I'm, I was really encouraged to hear that we are going to look, be looking for this within our ranks. And who knows what we're going to discover, but we have to be careful because we're not the thought police. We're not the First Amendment police. You know, you can believe that vaccines are the worst thing ever. That's your personal beliefs. That's fine. Um, you can believe that perhaps, and we've had FBI agents who uh, are, you know, whistleblowers who, uh, you know, one in particular didn't want to go out and affect an arrest of a January 6th individual. He wanted to be a, a essentially a conscientious objector. Um, well, sorry, I think the FBI said it's your job and you can have your views, but today your job is to go arrest this person on this valid arrest warrant. And if you refuse to do that, then then you're not doing your job. We're not going to stick you on on the, the phone desk that day. You're, we're telling you to go do your job. So I think we have to be thinking and looking about these and having an honest conversation and understanding that 
there are people that are going to have views that are different from us. Um, and where's that line? Where's that line? I mean, if we find a bona fide white supremacist in the Marines, the Army, the FBI, the CIA, whatever, we have to address that. But, you know, if we find people that just disagree, we have to be really careful in 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 not impeding upon First Amendment protected activities that even our government employees and our clearance holders, you know, do have a, a certain degree of rights to. Now, if they're talking about overthrowing the government, you know, if they're talking about, you know, if they're using, you know, racial slurs and all sorts of different types of things, that that obviously would be a problem in government service. But where's that line? You know, if I disagree with the vaccines or I disagree with January 6th, should I still have a clearance? And I think that the government is still trying to figure that out, but I was encouraged that they are talking about it and, and looks like they're looking into it. And we see evidence of that with, with this, the arrest of these uh, three Marines. Pete, before we let you go, um, I want to ask you, we talked about it at the beginning. You're going to elaborate a little bit more. If you ever watched that YouTube show, Hot Wings, they always ask, explain this social media moment as one of the questions to the folks eating hot wings. All right, Pete Lapp, you got to explain why you and Edward Snowden are going back and forth on Twitter and he eventually blocked you. <laughs> Tell our audience here why you were getting into it with uh, Edward Snowden. I don't, I, I, why did he ask him why he blocked me? I don't know. It's, um, it's a, it surprised me. First of all, I, one of the things I do um, is I teach, I teach for a, a, a government course. And I use this example when we talk about Snowden about, he has 5.1, million Twitter followers, which scares the hell out of me because I wonder how many of those 5.1 million Twitter followers hold clearances as well. And they're not, they're maybe sympathetic to him. So I was teaching this two weeks ago and I said, well, let me, let me make sure. And I pulled up on Twitter and I, I realized I got blocked by him. So I tweeted, what was it? Something I said. And, and I think, I think what, what probably put me over the edge for Eddie is when I called him Eddie and, and, and his mother called him Eddie once. And then, and then I think the other part was when he became a Russian citizen and I, I had the audacity to call him out about, well, I mean, you're going to go serve in Ukraine now that you're a, a Russian citizen. I know you were an ex green beret, but actually wash out um, green beret. So maybe he didn't like my sarcasm, my Jersey, my Jersey comes out sometimes and, and, but I now have the distinct honor and privilege to have been blocked by the Edward Snowden. Wow. And my kids, my, my son thought it was the coolest thing. My 21 year old son thought I was a badass. So, well, listen, I, I thought dad, was, dad cred, which is really cool. Right. I thought it was really cool too. I mean, I'm blocked by Gabrielle union for some reason. I have no idea why never talked to her in my life. So uh, that's a little bit cooler. Edward Snowden and obviously relatable uh, since you guys both work. Look, it, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. <laughs> Just call Eddie and a washout yeah. and you'll get blocked, I think. So, Seriously. you know. Well, Pete, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. The timings every time we have you on this program. Uh, I mean, I don't know who's going to be president in 2024, but Pete, keep your phone on you just in case we need you to explain the mishandling of classified docs that they go through. Uh, you can follow Pete Lab across social media. Go pre-order the book for when it comes out. Later on in Q4, as they say in the business world, the Queen of Cuba, an FBI agent's insider account of the spy who evaded detection for 17 years and a month. As if you don't know that story, go get Pete's book and it's going to explain more. Pete, can't thank you enough, buddy. You're always welcome back on the program whenever. Continue success to you, man. Stay safe. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. 
Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. All right, our thank yous there to Pete Lapp, former FBI special agent. Uh, he does a great job breaking down everything for us. Uh, we touched on so many things there, man. The mass shooting uh, and the way the investigation process happens there. President Biden, Pete said a lot of good stuff there. You know, you and I agree with this. You know, on on a high level surface, people are going to say former president, current president, documents, documents, home, home. You know, uh, the way he was able to break it down, especially the volume question that you asked him. I thought was really good. Um, no breakdown on Pete because Pete is self-explanatory. But as we get into our final segment here, I wanted to give our expert, another expert, an education expert who just so happens to be my co-host. Uh, I want to give you the floor now, uh, Mr. Savary, because a recent story came out about the state I live in, Florida, saying that an AP class teaches critical race theory. And the AP course is indoctrinating students to a political agenda. This, according to the Florida Department of Education, as they've rejected an advanced placement course that covers African-American studies. If you don't know or don't live here in the U.S., that would be the AP program, right? A lot of us took uh, AP advanced courses, which give you college credit. So when you get into college, you're already a little bit ahead of the ball. Um I'm going to first break down at a high level what was in the course. It's the purpose, uh, excuse me, the purpose of the class was to introduce students to the experiences and contributions of African-Americans through a variety of lenses. This is according to all the reporting that has happened here with NPR. What was not in the course, which was among the concerns of Florida officials about whether or not it will teach critical race theory. If you haven't heard critical race theory been explained on this show by professors and folks in the legal system. Obviously, it is a college level course that teaches the legal framework that argues about racism, not just the product of individual bias and how that embeds into legal systems and policies. So Florida rejected this AP course uh, because of perceived violations of Florida law. This is according to Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz Jr. Before I let Mr. Severi tee off here on this subject matter, Let's take a listen first to the White House Press Secretary, KJP, as she was asked about a Governor DeSantis and the measures that he's been doing to restrict this course from being taught to Florida students. Take a listen to this. These types of actions aren't new. They're not new from, from what we're seeing, especially from Florida, sadly. Florida currently bans teachers uh, from, take, from talking about who they are and who they love. As we've talked about many times here in this briefing room, they have banned more books in schools and libraries than almost every other state uh, in the country. And let's not forget, they didn't ban, uh, they didn't block, be more clear, I want to make sure I'm using the right word here, they didn't block AP European history, they didn't block our, our music history, they didn't block our uh, art history, uh, the, but the state chooses to, to block a course that is meant for high achieving high school students to learn about their history of arts and culture. All right, Nick, I turn to you now because, you know, I don't work in the field of education. I work in television and in sports as well. We do a news podcast here, but you're entrenched with school districts. I know, I know you'll be coming down to Florida to work with a certain school district here in the Miami-Dade area or school, excuse me. 
You've worked with nationwide other schools. You've been a teacher at the high school level, which is where this course would obviously be placed. Some of your takeaways when uh, this story came down and explain to the people what is actually happening here with Florida uh, banning this course from being taught. You know, I mean, first thing, it's 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 important to note that, you know, this is what's considered policy in the state of Florida. You know, stop woke, which when I was trying to look up the details on the bill, I get kept getting routed to this one flyer that just had a lot of buzzwords uh, about about trying to um, you know stop wokeness. But and that's that's what that's what DeSantis does. You know, this is the form of policy. It's certainly not helping buildings crumbling in Miami like you, you know, you're familiar with, Mike. Um, but the course itself, first thing I want, first thing it's important to share is it's a pilot course. Uh, you currently cannot be awarded college credit. Typically, when you take an AP class, uh, and I in high school, I you know, like others, you know, AP English literature, AP American history, AP psychology, all those things, and then you can take an a the, take the advanced placement test. If you score a certain number, it would allow you to get those credits in college. Which you know, obviously, there's the benefit of it's one less class to take in college, which you're you're breaking down the per class cost of college can certainly save you a fair amount of money. So it's a pilot class. There's nothing being awarded yet. But one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, when the, the state of Florida, the Florida Department of Education said a couple of things really stood out was, um, you know, from the Florida Department of Ed, you know, the content of the course is inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. If the college board comes back with historically accurate content, the Department of Ed will reopen the discussion. So that's a pretty, pretty direct response. Um the question I had was, well, what part of the course have they looked at? Because when you're on the college board, any course there has a summary. So, for example, I looked at the course on English literature, or I think it was English and writing. And it goes into full detail that if you're teaching this class as the advanced placement instructor, what you're going to cover. Mike, the only details from the college board website about the African-American um, studies class is just essentially a press release. There is no course rundown. So how in the world can the state of Florida, the Department of Ed, say all of these things and say that it lacks educational value and all this, you know, all this nonsense when they haven't read anything? Because I literally was on the website as I was preparing for this conversation and there's no information there. So right off the bat, what that should tell anyone, a fair interpretation, is that the state of Florida already made its decision about whether or not African-American history can be taught as an advanced placement subject. And the part that should be chilling for everyone is the fact that simply having a course focus on African-American history is enough for Ron DeSantis and the Florida Department of Education to immediately say no to what the press secretary had talked about on the College Board website is certainly advanced placement European history. And funny enough, if you're on the College Board website, the only classes around history are European history, American history, and politics. Um, and I think it's AP U.S. government. You, no, sorry, U.S. history and then U.S. government politics. Those are the only three that fall into history. The rest, because shockingly, the rest of the world isn't European, most of which, um, all f is featured in world languages. Not all, but world languages and cultures, which includes Chinese, French, German, Italian, Japanese, and Spanish. 
So there's no presence for a history class on any of those. Now, that's nothing to do with Florida, but that's just a really important insight when we think about you know, what it is that actually passes for what we want to you know, offer to kids um, you know, in high school. But the college board has already said that one of the things that they did about this course is the course is this is from this is from the Hill. Um, you know, the course is based on expertise and experience of college faculty and teachers across the country provides. And this is important. Evidence based introduction to African-American studies. Now, if the state of Florida wants to say, well, you know, this is historically inaccurate and this is just a bunch of nonsense. If you're providing evidence-based instruction, that's telling me that you're taking a pretty historically accurate and scientifically sound approach to this content. But again, the Department of Ed in Florida doesn't want to have anything to do with this. So as I was learning all this, it, I mean, I, I can understand a pilot program being rejected by a state. I, I truly can get that. But when the state then immediately goes on the offensive and says that this class is this, that, and the other thing, and there's almost no information about the class right now, that's the part we should all be worried about, because that means that there's implicit bias already at Jump Street. You know, Henry Louis Gates was quoted as talking about this course and, you know, and had said that, you know, advanced placement for African-American studies is not CRT. He tells this is for an interview with Time Magazine. You know, it's not the 1619 Project. It is a mainstream, rigorously vetted, here's that term again, rigorously vetted, academic approach to a vibrant field of study, one half a century old in the American Academy and much older, of course, in historically black colleges and universities. So again, there's this reference of evidence. There's this reference that this has been properly vetted. And the state of Florida is already coming out and saying, well, it's historically accurate. Who in the hell is the Department of Education in the state of Florida, where we are seeing you know books being taken off shelves, to say what is and what is not historically accurate? Is Ron DeSantis a historian? That essentially is Florida's Department of Ed in a nutshell. Well, I have no, I have no comment on the Florida Department of Education. I have family members that are teachers here in the state. I offer no commentary on that because we'll be doing some more around that subject matter with somebody who's kind of going through it later on in the coming weeks. So our thank yous to uh, Nicholas Severi for breaking that. Our education expert, you got you got your 10 minutes there to break down what's happening in the state of Florida. It is important. It truly is important. And, and we're seeing this play out in a couple of different school districts nationwide. We've seen a prominent uh, uh, sports anchor talking about things that are happening in classrooms that have been de debunked and disproven that are not happening. So more on uh, the education system here in America in the coming weeks. Uh, for this episode, you want to check out the video portion of the interview we did with Pete Lapp. Head over to our YouTube channel. Type in Can We Please Talk uh, over there. Hit subscribe for me. Follow us. Audio podcast platforms. You know them by now. Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to all our fans over on Good Pods that listen to us. Email us. Can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. If you have a comment, question, anything about what we've talked about in this episode, and also follow us on social media, IG, TikTok, at Can We Please Talk Podcast on Twitter, at Can We Please Talk. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. Thank you to each and every one of you that listens in each week. As always, I am Mike Leon. And hoping one day Ron DeSantis actually reads about American history. I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 